Welcome to The Way Bible Study Podcast, where we do more walking the walk than talking the talk, with your host, Heath Meadows. Discipleship, Doctrine and Donuts, who said Bible study can't be fun? And now your host, Heath Meadows. Hello and welcome to The Way Video Podcast. I'm your host, Heath Meadows. This is episode three of our study of the book of Revelation. We will be diving into some of the theology of the book as well as the first eight verses in chapter one. Before we dive into chapter one, however, I want to briefly cover the structure and theology of the book. I've chosen a more condensed version of the layout of the structure of the book. For a more in-depth discussion, I would refer my listeners to G.K. Bale or Ian Paul's commentary of the book of Revelation. Very good commentaries. They go more in-depth on the structure. But suffice to say, for our purposes in this program, Revelation has a very large number of markers of structure making use of the number seven. We've kind of talked about this in the previous episode. There are seven messages to the churches. That's chapters two through three. You have seven seals that are open, chapters six through eight. Seven trumpets are blown. That's chapters eight through nine. Seven bowls of wrath that are poured out, and that's in chapter 16. And then you have all these other patterns of seven within the text. And each large unit has a microstructure. The striking discontinuity of the text as a whole which is there to grab our attention. So the any kind of discontinuity, John's purposely done that in order to grab our attention. And there's a widespread occurrence of links and connections between different sections. So an example is the letters to the seven churches where the opening greeting links back to the vision of the exalted Jesus in Revelation 21. So all kinds of neat little things like that throughout Revelation. Theology is defined as the study of God in order to know God, to hear from God, and follow God. Revelation's central focus is given to us from the very opening line. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, a revealing of the Son of God who is the express image of God. That should be the central focus every time we open our Bibles, but it is especially true of Revelation. It delivers a revelatory insight into our Lord like no other book in the Bible does. In Revelation 1, the divine identity of Jesus is the forefront, but he also functions as the one who brings the message of God to He is actually described with the same features as the angel in Daniel 10, which we will get into on the next episode. But he brings this awesome power of the divine presence while bridging the gap between human and the divine. In Revelation 5 and throughout the rest of the book, he's the lamb slain who exercised his power by giving up his life. Now he stands victorious over death, hell, and the grave. His death has defeated every enemy that stands opposed to the purposes of God. We see Christos Victor, Jesus triumphant, throughout the book of Revelation. And that is one of the main theological themes we want to pull away. Jesus is seen sharing the throne with his Father and sharing many of the Father's titles. We're going to get into some of that as John uses descriptive analogies from the Old Testament and attributes those to Christ. And we'll see that again in the next episode. But they are distinguished at the same time. So you see a lot of these things being shared by the Father and Son, but there's a lot of distinguishing characteristics as well. This makes Revelation key for the reflecting on the Trinity 
and the main focus of our study is seeing and hearing Christ in Scripture here. So if you really want to dive into a study on the Trinity, which is a very complicated subject, Revelation is one of those books where you would probably spend a lot of time because it gives more insight into the Trinity than any other book in the Bible. So other theological threads we can see within the book of Revelation is suffering and, and victory. Patient endurance comes with a crown. Uh, the throne, we see the heavenly realm and God's abode throughout Revelation and descriptions of God's abode, which is really neat. The new creation, the new covenant, the new temple, the new Israel, and the new Jerusalem affirms the future fulfillment of the prophetic themes of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. All five of these are metaphors for the one reality of God's intimate presence with his people. Beale summarizes the main theme of Revelation in this, and I quote him, The main idea of the apocalypse could be roughly formulated as follows. The sovereignty of God and Christ in redeeming and judging brings them glory, which is intended to motivate saints to worship God and reflect his glorious attributes through obedience to his word. So before we get into the chapter, I want to just look at interpretations of the apocalypse. You have the futurist, the preterist, the historicist, historicist, yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it, and the idealist. These approaches have multiple variations, and many readers of Revelation argue for the eclectic approach that draws upon insights from multiple perspectives. I am one of those. I think every perspective holds a truth but not one holds the truth, if that makes sense. I think everybody has a piece of the puzzle, and we all got to get together, and that's the beauty of the body of Christ, to put that puzzle together. So preterists will hold that Revelation describes events that would soon take place for John and his first century readers. For example, preterists typically interpret Babylon's destruction to refer to the judgment on apostate Israel when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 78 days. So most of the preterists believe that the majority of Revelation has come to pass, except for maybe a very small portion. Futurists typically believe that most of Revelation is yet to come to pass. In fact, Revelations chapter 4 through 22, futurists believe is completely in the future. They believe that that's something that is coming and not yet here. A dispensational futurists actually will believe that chapter 6 through 19, that again, we'll get to, our prophecy of literal seven-year tribulation. They talk about a rapture. We'll get into that later. Historicist interpreted as a prophetic outline of the major historical developments from John's day until Jesus's return, often focusing on Western church history. There are many versions of historicism, though Protestant interpreters have sometimes connected the Antichrist and Babylon to the Roman papacy. And the idealist is revelation symbolically depicts the ongoing conflict between the forces of God and of Satan throughout the church. Age. In the idealist view, I recognize that Revelation has relevance for today's believers, and John's symbolic visions could possibly have multiple fulfillments. Historicists may be right in their historical event identification, but wrong in limiting it limiting the event to one historic reality, which I think there's many. And we talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the introduction about the concentric circles in history repeating itself. If you haven't watched that, you need to go back and check that out. And this is the same for the preterist view. And without a doubt, there are future events in Revelation, but not the entirety of chapters 4 through 12. I think there are definitely, Jesus hasn't returned yet, so we know that's, that's future. We're going to proceed to the text. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to through eight. I'm just going to read 
those eight verses, starting in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So let's start by looking at verse one. And we'll just go through this kind of verse by verse and break some things down for you guys. First and foremost, right from the get-go, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It is the revelation of Jesus, our Lord, bottom line, not the revelation of John, not the Antichrist, not 666, not the beast or the one world government. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about revealing him to his church. And we need to read it in that way. We need to make sure that we're focusing in that. It is important that we are studying the text to understand and know and follow Christ. If we do that, things will be revealed. Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis which means what is revealed, communication of knowledge previously hidden to man by a divine or supernatural agency, especially communications that proceed from God or Christ. So this was hidden, now it's being revealed. The word apocalypse expresses the subject and nature of the book, which is a heightened form of prophecy. So not only is it just a prophetic word, apocalypse and apocalyptic literature is a heightened form of prophecy. And again, we've talked about this previously, but you have to understand the idea behind the apocalypse is this is not just somebody receiving a prophetic word from, say, you go to church and there's a prophet there and he reads your mail. This is something that is a direct revelation from heaven, and the prophetic translation of what the vision is is directly told by some kind of angelic messenger, which is important. Daniel 2 places a significant role in verses 1 and 2. The reference of soon or nearness, and this is important because a lot of people you'll find out when you're out there and people start talking or the, the skeptics will say, well, you know, that the book of Revelation, John thought Jesus was coming back within the next week or two, and it says he's coming back soon. Well, that was 2,000 years ago, and I'm sure some of you have heard that. Well, the interesting thing is that's not really what is being conveyed by the Greek there. So the reference of soon or nearness has to do with the start of these prophetic events beginning to happen and not their fulfillment. When John says these things happening soon, these prophetic events have already started and will begin to increase as time goes on. He's not speaking directly into the fulfillment of those prophetic events. And so there is also a feeling of suddenness that comes unexpectedly. In the Greek, the word is intachia, and that is that feeling of it's starting, but then when it when it really does happen, it's like, boom, it happens suddenly. And that's the kind of message that's being conveyed with that whole idea of the nearness. It's Everything's about ready to start. It's, it's soon to take place. Not that Jesus is coming back the next day, which he could, 
But John is trying to convey the urgency of the hour, that there's always an urgency for the church. It's never gone away. Since Jesus was resurrected, taken to heaven, and the Holy Spirit was poured out, there should have been a consistent urgency in the church throughout the ages. And you'll find that a lot of times there's not. So the next verse, he made a part of one and into two. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. There's that apocalyptic kind of feel. That angel is revealing to John what he's seen, actually interpreting the vision for him. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. This states the subject of the book. It's the revelation of God by God. John states here that he is a fellow servant. And it's interesting that servant occurs 14 times, which is two times seven. Again, those patterns, along with the words saints, both names for God's people. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Again, that time of nearness. We talked about that just a minute ago. True hearing means obedient action and response to what was heard. John uses the Greek word kairos, which is a point in time or an opportunity instead of chronos, which is hours or days. So he's looking at the opportunity or a point in time. This sets the tone as the time being now, right now, to respond to what you're hearing and what's being read aloud to you. See, this letter would have been read aloud back in those days to the churches in front of the congregation. And what John is saying right now is the time to respond to what I'm telling you, what I'm writing to you. Mark 1.15, Jesus uses the same word to describe that the time was at hand to repent for the kingdom that was near. So that same idea, that kairos, now's the time, right now, this point in time is now your opportunity to repent because the kingdom has come. We must not just hear, we have to do something. Moving on to verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. The number seven here is chosen deliberately for the symbolic reasons used throughout the book. There were more than seven churches in that area, but the number represents fullness of representation. John is symbolically pointing to these seven churches being conditions of the universal church. The letters and their conclusion are addressed to all the churches. Seven lampstands and the seven spirits represent the universal work of God. And the seven spirits equal the Holy Spirit and his attributes, which are listed in Isaiah 11. Look those up when you get a chance. It's an interesting. Isaiah 11 is actually a very interesting passage of scripture. John refers to it multiple times. We'll actually talk more about it next episode. So you have this threefold clause as a reflection of the Exodus 3.14 and as a statement of the absolute sovereignty of God. So that threefold clause of who is, who was, and who is to come harkens back to that moment when Moses was in front of the burning bush and he's asking, well, who do I tell the children of Israel is sending me? And God says, tell them I am that I am has sent you. And that is the reference back to Exodus 3, 14. We also encounter what we call solecism. I think I'm pronouncing that right. John's purposeful misuse of grammar to draw attention to the fact he is referencing 
Exodus 3.14. Since it occurs twice as an explanation of the divine name. And instead of having the who was first, John is using the who is, placing that at the beginning of the explanation or the description of God first to to stress God's living presence right now. And so this is also an underhanding smack in the face of the Greco-Roman god Zeus. Basically, Zeus was described in the same manner that John's using here. So John's just really rubbing the the Roman Empire's nose and their main god a lot. The seven spirits of God, the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit that are listed in Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. This is what is described as equipping the Messiah for his end time reign. This is a description of Christ's role. So if we back up and we read that whole idea of the faithful witness, that's one, the firstborn of the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings on the earth. That's a threefold description of who he is. So he has persevered as a faithful witness even unto the death, which he conquered through resurrection and became cosmic ruler overall. As believers, we also will be resurrectors. We're not going to be thrown into the lake of hell for those that are unbelievers. So the faithful witness description fits the message to the seven churches due to their, due to their temptation to compromise their witness under persecution. These three full descriptions are meant to encourage believers about to enter persecution since Christ suffered the same thing and conquered it. They will be empowered to do the same. The witness is primarily prophetic in character, and they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The whole idea further down the road here, we'll talk about Revelation 19.10, which is the testimony of Jesus as the spirit of prophecy. This means when you are testifying about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, you are prophesying your own victory through him over the things of the world. That's good stuff right there. Let me repeat that because you really need to get this. It means that when you are testifying about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, you are prophesying your own victory through him over the things of this world. Only through complete dependence on and empowerment by the Holy Spirit will you endure to the end. The threefold description actually derives from Psalm 89. Moving on. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. John moves into a doxology. Basically, it's a uh, brief expression of praise primarily to God. And Christ's actions willingly going to the cross to pay the price for our sins has made a twofold office for himself and believers. We are a kingdom and, a, and priests at the same time. This concept is extremely important as to understand the work of the cross. It was not only a means of justification, but it gave us status once we have accepted Christ into our lives. This statement actually comes from Exodus 19.6. And so we're going to take a really quick look at that. Exodus 19.6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9, that we are a kingdom of priests. The church now has taken on that role in a worldwide position. It's interesting to know that, again, John is pulling from some of these Old Testament themes, especially from, and you're going to see this a lot, especially from the Exodus. So we operate as a royal priesthood by being his light and imagers on this earth. And Beale writes, in view of the redempted historical and prophetic eschatological fulfillment, that's a mouthful, 
context of Revelation, use of the Exodus 19.6 description of God's people does not merely compare the church to the nation of Israel, but also conveys the tacit notion that the church now functions as true Israel while believing ethnic Israelites who claim to be true Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, Revelation 2.9, are liars, Revelation 3.9, and is a dative of reference or advantage. That is, Christ has made believers to serve as kings and priests and service to his Father, which is to be for his Father's eternal glory and dominion. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So this is an important verse referenced here. are two Old Testament texts, and we're going to see a lot of referenced texts in Daniel 7, which is the enthronement of the Son of Man over the nations after God's judgment, and the other is Zechariah 12.10. We're going to take a real quick look at Daniel 7.13, and it says... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's an obvious reference there. The other one is Zechariah 12.10, and we'll take a look at that. Starting in verse 10, we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimah in the plain of Megiddo. Basically, it's the in Zechariah 12, 10, it's describing God's end time defeat of the enemies of Israel and their repentance and acceptance of the one they have pierced. This imagery is also used in Matthew chapter 24 verses 30 through 31. This has been altered from Zechariah, though, in two ways. One, it's every eye, not just Israel or Jerusalem, and all tribes of the earth. So John basically takes this passage of Scripture, and now that Jesus has been resurrected, the Holy Spirit, and the church has been born, and now the Great Commission has been given, and the church is worldwide, not just in one location. Again, he kind of turns up the volume and says, this is for the whole world. The whole world going to weep when they see him. The whole world's going to know that that's the one they pierced, and they're going to be repentant of it. So you can see directly what John's doing here. He's taking these things. He's not doing direct quotes. He's taking these images that are in his mind, and he's seeing these visions, and he's saying all these things are a melting pot, and he's just blending them all together and writing them out, and it's actually really cool because it all works. It all theologically works. It's it's really amazing. And uh, so the last verse we'll look at today, very quickly here, we're wrapping up. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and the Omega is what is known as a merism. Merism takes two opposites in order to make a grand statement about everything between them. It just covers everything. In this case, the first and the last states God's control and is in everything, period over everything. Our next episode, we'll be looking at Revelation 
one nine through 20. If you have any questions or comments, head to again, the website, the ascend the high place.com. Uh, I'll leave a link. There's places on there where you can send us comments. Also think about becoming a part of the community platform that we have, where we can have a uh, conversation and diverse about what we're learning here on things, questions, ask questions, or even if God has, Hey, during this study, he showed me this throw it up on the community board and, and it's we can all have a discussion about it. I hope you uh, guys got something out of this. And until we study again, God bless. This concludes our program for today. We hope you are enjoying the journey. Until next time, keep living the word and walking the way.